thank you so much to all of those who have been leading us in our services over this Lord's Day and those doing technical things down at the back and everybody involved in helping us to worship the Lord. And that's been great singing tonight, and it's all for God's glory. A couple of weeks ago, we went to see the new Top Gun movie, Maverick. So, Tom Cruise is back. He evidently has the secret of eternal youth because well over 30 years after the original movie, he looks pretty much the same. I don't know if there's been any work done. I will not speculate on that, but we went to see this movie, and it was very enjoyable. And I suppose that Tom is just one of a long list of Hollywood heroes. One of my great heroes from my childhood, Steve McQueen, revving up his bike in The Great Escape, or Arnie as the Terminator promising, I'll be back. And all of them are super cool. They're rugged. They're loved by the ladies. They're admired by the men. And they always seem to be in control of the situation. You could say that they are the archetypal Hollywood hero. Well, when it comes to God's Word, the Bible, we know that the Lord calls servants not heroes. And most of His servants would not fit the mold of a Hollywood hero. As you begin to read your way through God's Word, if you're holding out for a hero as judged by the standards of this world, you will have a long wait. And Gideon is a prime example. We could say that Gideon is weakness personified, just think about the story so far that we have been reading of Gideon in these particular chapters of the book of Judges, and think about the amount of weakness that this man displays. When we look at the book of Judges as a whole, we know it to be a story of the weakness of God's people. It's a story that tells us about His faithfulness and their failure. And as we come to these particular chapters, think about what we have discovered of Gideon so far, the weakness that we encountered all the way through chapter 6. If you look back at that chapter for just a moment, it begins right the way back in Judges 6 verse 2, where we're told that the power of Midian was so oppressive that the people hid. Then we're told in verse 6 of chapter 6, that Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. They were desperate. And this is reflected in Gideon himself, that when we first encounter Gideon in verse 11 of chapter 6, you'll see that he is hiding away his crops from the Midianites, that he is doing that outside job indoors. There is something wrong with that picture and the weakness continues. In verse 15, Gideon pleads his weakness as being a reason not to do what God is asking him to do, and he talks about his weakness of status. Who am I to be doing this job of leading your people? Don't you know, Lord, that I'm from the, the least family and the least tribe? We see Gideon's weakness in verse 26 of chapter 6, 
his, his fear of his family and his townspeople, so that when the Lord commands him to knock down the, the, the idol, the pole to Asherah, to destroy the, the, the idol to Baal or the, the, the altar to Baal, he's terrified. He does it in the middle of the night. His weakness is so apparent. And all the way through the chapter, Gideon asks for assurance. First of all, in verse 17, he says, Lord, if it really is you asking me to do this, well, please give me a sign. The sign is given, but that is still not enough so that then we get to the fleece test down in verses 36 to 40, that he fails to trust the Lord's Word to him. So, the story of Gideon is very much a story of weakness. It's a reminder to us that the Lord tends to pick the most unlikely people to be His servants. And in the process of doing that, He doesn't use an 11 plus or an entrance exam or a personality test. We think about Jesus and the people that He chose to be His disciples. A former terrorist, a zealot, a bunch of fishermen, a cheat, Peter, who spent so much time getting it wrong and then denied ever knowing the Lord Jesus. And the lesson that we've been learning in this series is that God's ways are not our ways. Well, let's turn again to Judges chapter 7, because in this chapter we see in Gideon and in Israel as a whole the ultimate example of God's power being made perfect when His people are weak. And we have been thinking about that biblical truth, that God's strength is displayed when we are weak. But that's a truth that could quickly be misinterpreted by some people. The conclusion, the wrong conclusion that someone could arrive at is, well, if that's the case, then surely the best way for God to be glorified in my life is to be a complete loser, is to live my life badly. So, I will opt out of everything. I'll take my chances. I'll be lazy. I'll be indecisive. I will take lots of risks. And then God will come to my rescue, and He will really work in my life. Well, that's not how it is. And we need to understand what weakness is in the context of God's strength being displayed in our weakness. What is it that we're talking about here? Well, once again, we come back to this great commentator on the book of Judges, Dale Ralph Davis, and he talks about this weakness. It's quite a long quote, but stick with this, because Davis says, I would stress that Gideon's and Israel's weakness is not a false weakness induced by mere modesty. Weakness is their real condition. So, in Christian experience, it is important to define what weakness is not. It does not mean that you are a glob of spiritual jelly that flops at God's feet. And he goes on to say, you may, you may not feel weak at all. It has little to do with how you feel you do not feel weak, you are weak. That is, you are stripped of all human resources and are forced 
to lean upon God alone. So that as we come to that verse, that theme verse, for these few weeks spent in this part of Judges, where in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, Paul tells us about the message that the Lord brought to him in his weakness. The message is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, as we think about that verse in the context of this passage, it's important to understand what this weakness is, because there are two types of weakness that are present in the story of Gideon and God's people in Judges 7 and 8. There is what could be described as the right kind of weakness. It is the type of weakness in which God works powerfully. And then there is a wrong kind of weakness, a weakness of character that leaves people close to what God can do in their life. And next Sunday evening, God willing, just before I head off on holiday, we will consider that wrong kind of weakness as we look at chapter 8 and end this particular part of the book of Judges. But tonight, let's very quickly think about the right kind of weakness, for it's a weakness that is seen in this chapter, particularly in the first half of this chapter, chapter 7. And it could be described also as being a necessary weakness. Once again, God's people have been overwhelmed by a great enemy. We have already heard about the Midianites back in chapter 6, verse 5. We're told that they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. So, an idea, a picture of vastness. It was impossible to count them. And then the same message comes across in this chapter, in chapter 7, verse 12, we see this great coalition, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. I remember when the first Gulf War happened and there was that great coalition taking up arms against Saddam Hussein led by the Americans. And the Americans, their presence there, the might of their military there was described as shock and awe, a great demonstration of superiority. Well, here, the Midianites are in the business of shock and awe, and it leaves God's people, Israel, absolutely terrified. And I want you to see how God brings about their rescue. It begins with His Word, back in chapter 6, verse 10, it begins with the Lord clearly telling His people, this is why you're in such trouble. You have not listened to me. That is part of the rescue. And then it's a rescue that is brought about by His servant Gideon, who's called to lead the people to victory. But this is going to be a victory where people will be forced to give the Lord the credit they will be convinced that it is God who has brought them great deliverance. And as I read through this chapter, I hope you feel the same way. I'm amazed by the first part of chapter 7, because here 
God's people face overwhelming odds. Israel is up against it. It's up against an enemy that is too numerous to count. So, what does the Lord do? Does He send reinforcements? No. He begins to whittle down His own side. And I want you to look closely at the sequence of events here. You can see that the Israelite army begins with 32,000 men, but look at God's instruction in verse 2. He says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. And yes, you read that right. It's not the Lord saying you do not have enough. You have too many men. And so, we read about the first sifting process in verse 3. It's a pretty simple strategy. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Now, that is a good option. And of the 32,000 men, 22,000 go home straight away. Put yourself in their position. If someone came to you on the eve of a battle, if you're scared, just go on ahead home. And maybe the amazing thing is that 10,000 actually choose to stay. That can only be down to one thing, manly pride. The 10,000 think, well, no, we'll, we'll stay around. I know this is a, a, we're going to get a hiding here, but no, we're going to stick it out. We're going to stay here to the end. So that the further instruction comes from God in verse 4, the sifting continues. And the instruction is clear. If you look at that verse, if I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. And then come the radical cutbacks. If you just scan through verses 5 to 7, so that there is a process here where, depending on how the, the soldiers drink their water at the river, then they either remain or they are sent home. And the result of that the incredible result of that is that 10,000 then becomes 300. Those are radical cutbacks. And I sometimes wonder, because it's the kind of brain that I have, what it must have been like for the 9,700 who were sent home, shrugging their shoulders. What was that all about? And thinking, you know, I'm going home to my wife, and I was brave enough to stay here, but I'm not going to be around for the battle. How am I going to explain that? but it's so important, and let's get serious here, it is so important that we understand what is going on in this part of this book. The really crazy thing is that I've read scholars who have tried to explain all of this in great detail, and they come up with elaborate theories, and they, they say, well, you know, the thing is, the 22,000, they were no use anyway because they were afraid, so they would have been holding Gideon back, so that's why they were sent home. And the, the 300 who were kept by God, they were alert because they were lapping up the water, and they would have been keeping an eye out for the enemy, and you get all of these detailed explanations. But I'm sorry, that is missing the whole point of this passage. It's not a passage that is telling us how great a general God is. It's telling us how He works through our weakness. So, this is God's Word. It's not the SAS handbook. 
It's not that God kept over the 300 bravest, most elite fighters. The point is that He reduced an army of 10,000 ordinary men to an army of 300 ordinary men. And we don't need to guess why, because God goes on to tell us why He has done that in the rest of verse 2. You see how the numbers are reduced, and this is why the Lord says, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. The Lord knew how dangerous it would be for His wayward, arrogant, sinful people to think that they had secured this great victory by themselves. He knew what it would be like if His people got too big for their boots. And believer in Christ here tonight, church of Jesus Christ, gathered together tonight, the Lord would want us to look to Him rather than looking to ourselves. He would want us to seek His strength rather than relying on our own, that we would not get too big for our boots. And doing it this way meant that the Israelites could be sure of where the victory came from. Later on, we see how the Lord delivers them to a great victory, how 300 defeat countless thousands of men, that they run into the camp breaking jars and causing chaos, and in the, 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 the kind of heat of the battle, in the confusion, everyone in the Midianite camp turns on each other. But look at where the source of the victory is to be found. Let's be clear about this in verse 22. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. This was His doing. This is God's victory. This is His strength at work. And people, what a danger there is for us in our lives to think that we can do everything in our own strength, especially when it comes to kingdom work. So that sometimes circumstances force us to recognize God's hand in what we do. For the people then, when the 32,000 was stripped right back to 300, then they knew the truth of God's promise back in the previous chapter in verse 16, I will be with you. And this is a necessary weakness. It's the kind of weakness that enables us to understand who we are and who God is and how we should relate to the one who made us. It is the right kind of weakness. It's the weakness that Paul talks about in this verse as the Lord tells him and tells us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But as we come towards the end tonight, please don't confuse weakness with ineptitude. And that's especially important for those of us in positions of leadership within the church and future leaders within the church to understand. Yes, Gideon was weak, 
but he was not useless. And so, this sermon tonight, this study of this passage is not an excuse for ineptitude within the church of Jesus Christ. It's not an excuse for God's people to throw their hands up in the air and to say, well, you know, I can't do anything. I might as well just sit back and do nothing. Don't ever spiritualize laziness. Don't ever spiritualize a determination to do nothing. The church needs strong leadership. In our church, that begins with our elders, but it extends out to other leaders in this place. And maybe sometimes, given the lack of people involved in some things, you feel like the 300 who were alongside Gideon. But please do not confuse weakness with uselessness. Yes, Gideon was weakness personified. We've been able to see that. We've tracked that over the course of this evening. But he was not useless. When only 300 were left, this man gave strong and determined leadership. Look at verse 15, the example and the motivation that he gives. Get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. He gives a strong lead. And then his example in verse 17, how he leads by example, watch me, follow my lead. Elders here tonight, leaders within this congregation or other congregations, can you say that to people? Watch me, follow my lead. Because remember that people closely watch their leaders. So, there is nothing faveless about the lead that Gideon gives to God's people. Yes, privately, he was the master of what if. Lord, how can I be sure? But publicly, he provided this decisive leadership. So, please do not misunderstand what this weakness is all about. It's not about flopping down in a chair and giving up before you've even started. It's about being totally, utterly dependent upon God in all that He has called you to do in this place and in your life. And so, tonight, a challenge. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus, if you know that Jesus has sought and saved you in your life, but are not involved in the work of the kingdom in this place, what is it that's holding you back? Could it be a sense of inadequacy? I could never do that. Well, please don't make that an excuse not to serve the Lord, but make that the basis on which you serve. Lord, I can't do this on my own. It is over to you. I need your strength in my weakness. Next week, we'll finish our look at Gideon, God willing, by looking at the wrong kind of weakness, a weakness that is present in and detrimental to the church of Jesus Christ. But hearing so much about weakness tonight, it helps us to understand our state, doesn't it? We identify with Gideon. We identify with the people of God in the day of the Midianites. We know that we are physically weak, 
especially at this time of the year, and for some at this time in our lives. We know that we are clueless, that so often we lack solutions to to problems within the church and problems within our lives. But more than anything else tonight, we know that we are weak in righteousness, that we are sinful people, and that our ultimate need is Christ. And aware of this weakness, aware of this sinfulness, well, it compels us to seek the grace of God. It compels us to come back to the cross of Christ, where grace and mercy are to be found. We say amen as we think of God's Word, and we sing in response.